0: This week on Monero Talk is sponsored by Cake Wallet. Store, send, receive, and exchange your Monero safely on your iOS and Android too. Cake Wallet is open source and you always control your own keys and seed. And by XMR.to. Anonymously exchange your Monero into Bitcoin and seamlessly send Monero to any Bitcoin address. Go to XMR.to or use it right in your Cake Wallet. Cake Wallet and XMR.to are trusted and verified by the Monero community. Monero Talk is also made possible from contributions by viewers and listeners like you.
1: This week on Monero Talk, we wrap up our 36C3 series. I first speak with Omi. Omi is a former open source software developer at CERN and CTO of Bidi, a Swiss cryptocurrency exchange. He currently co organizes discussion groups and technical workshops. Around crypto economics. Omi gave a talk on why forks happen and their consequences. In his talk, he discussed examples of forks in different social structures, from hunter gatherer tribes and religious factions to open source projects, and particularly the crypto economic protocols that enable decentralized infrastructure. We discuss Omi's talk and I ask him why Monero appears to be better than Bitcoin at avoiding contentious forks. Next, I speak with Francisco Cabanas, aka Arctic Mind. Francisco holds a PhD in physics. He has actively researched and invested in cryptocurrencies since 2011 and focuses on the economic, social, regulatory, and long term economic viability aspects of cryptocurrencies. Francisco has been a core team member of the Monero project since 2016. Arctic Mind gave a talk on Monero's adaptive block weight approach to scaling. Compares Monero's adaptive approach versus Bitcoin's fixed block weight approach and its effects on scaling, and the impact of Monero's tail emission versus Bitcoin's cap supply on long term network security. We discuss Arctic Mind's talk and get into the weeds of Monero's scalability. My takeaway is Monero needs to do a better job at explaining and advertising its ability to scale. Monero's transaction sizes may be five times larger than Bitcoin's because of the built-in privacy, but long-term, Monero's actually built better for scaling than Bitcoin. And that's ignoring the fact that Bitcoin has to essentially make extra transactions to mix coins in an attempt to achieve fungibility. I urge you to listen closely to ArcticMind's 36C3 talk and this interview with him to grasp the arguments for why Monero is ultimately better designed for scaling than coins like Bitcoin. Monero Talk starts now. All right, May, thanks for coming on the show. How's it going?
2: Thank you, Doug. How's Great the conference to get, going? A good time here. Yes, uh, it's been a lot of work uh, this year. Uh, I've been organizing uh, Swiss Crypto Economics Assembly. I had a talk this morning and uh, workshop now in the evening. So I'm. Um, with this interview, this is the last uh DC thing that I have in the schedule.
1: And then, then you could just party, relax, listen to the uh, other talks. Yeah, exactly.
2: Nice. I didn't have the, the chance to do much of that yet.
1: So I, I listened to your talk this morning. It was uh, the sharp yep. forks we follow, right? Is that forks we follow? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's it. Uh, it was very interesting. Um well, how do you want to do like a quick summary of it, and then we'll, I'll ask you some questions about it?
2: Uh, sure. So uh, the the talk was uh, a social exploration on what forks are and what other example examples we have of forks in in human history. Um, so I covered um, well what a fork is in in open source projects, uh, what we mean by by forks in blockchain. And what are the type of forks that we have? So soft forks, hard forks, and then within the hard forks, which ones are the problematic ones or the ones that I was focusing on, which are the contentious ones? And then uh, what are the things that are, uh, that we are discussing about? What are the reasons for the uh, split to be discussed? And at the same time, what are the things that brought people together? Why were they working on the same project uh, at the beginning? So this opens uh, a big discussion as to how communities come together. So just to give a bit of background of myself as well, just to contextualize uh, this topic, I'm, I'm a software engineer. I've been working in open source development uh, in the past and, and now again. And then I had like two years, and I have worked in professionally in crypto. So I, I got fascinated by by the topic of uh, what does it mean that now there are two blockchains. Now there are two currencies, and now uh, the market cap of these two currencies combined uh, are higher than they were before. Um, so this has been um, a question um, that has been in my mind for a long time, and this was my, my first attempt to to formalize a bit my ideas and try to share them with uh, with an audience. Um, so yeah, I don't know if you want me to need to, uh, to drill down into more specifics on on the matter.
1: Well, yeah. Well, it, when I listened to your talk, it got me thinking. It got me thinking about Monero specifically, obviously. Um, and what I think, what I find interesting about Monero is that while we upgrade every six months, I don't know if you're, I'm, I don't know if you're aware of that. Um, we we don't, you know, you don't see contentious forks. There's been one or two attempts. Uh, But I think it's pretty interesting that Monero has managed to uh, maintain this cohesive nature and everybody's kind of staying on the same trajectory and track together and not forking off. And I was just wondering if you have any opinions as to why that might be the case for Monero.
2: So not being very close to the Monero community. So I don't know exactly what are the the dynamics. uh, And I I could say that... um, it would say uh, to me that maybe the, the community is uh, well aligned uh, ideologically, and, and also technologically. Uh, maybe the community agrees uh, uh, on what are the priorities of how the the protocol and the the software that implements the protocol should evolve. So maybe that's um, uh, signalling some good practices on community management. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you never know when. Um, a clique of the community will start thinking differently and they will feel compelled enough to, to start making a contentious uh, proposal that will end up in a fork. Um, so yeah, that, that's what I could say about,
1: uh, about it. Do you think there's things um, that a community can do or should do to attempt to prevent forks? So contentious forks.
2: Again, um, having having a clear vision is one thing, but then it opens the discussion about who is uh, uh, broadcasting that vision, and that taps into uh, the discussions about decentralization and can we really decentralize all the things. Because you can say that the Ethereum community as well is less belligerent than the, the Bitcoin community internally, Um but at the same time they have a, a more centralized uh, leadership around Vitalik and the Ethereum Foundation. So maybe it even boils down to the community themselves uh, discussing how how far off we want to shoot. Because a, a good another good argument would be that even communities that try to shoot away from the the consensus of the protocol, they're also experimenting uh, features and policies that are perceived uh, as dangerous and the community don't feel uh, uh, confident enough to implement them in the the main chain because there is, at the end, economic value attached to it. So people start getting um, scared and um, cautious. So you could say that communities that are more, uh, friendly to forks, maybe they are encouraging more experimentation and having more diversity of protocols. But if we wanted to have not, uh, n- no forks, well, we could again, like I did in the, in the presentation this morning, an analogy with uh, other forms of social organizations, um, dictatorial regimes, have uh, a, a very strong allergy against uh, dissent. So they will go, uh, a colleague of mine says that it's proof of gulag, you know, if you don't like what uh, what we're playing, then you will be repressed and there will be no forks. So do we really want to live in communities where we don't allow forks? That That's, that's an interesting discussion to have as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, once again, in in terms of uh, Monero, what I think is interesting about it is ultimately, if you really want this stuff to succeed, uh, you know, Monero or Bitcoin, whatever it may end up being, uh, at the end of the day, it's a protocol that we're trying to get the world to adopt. And so uh, ultimately, you don't want there. Eventually, you want everybody to agree on ideally one protocol, right, would be the most ideal, right, uh, for for various reasons. It would be great if everybody was using one protocol to transfer value, uh, just like it'd be great if everybody was speaking the same language, or I guess it would be great if everybody lived in the same nation state. Um, but so do you ultimately then not see there being one big cryptocurrency that everybody adopts because of human nature, this uh tendency for people to break off into tribes and to want things their own way
2: i think that uh, we are seeing um two forces that are pervasive in in all patterns that we see in the universe that are uh, a tendency for things to clamp together and for things to um to spark to become sparse so if I take an evolutionary analysis to how I see the evolution of the different currencies, blockchains, languages, countries, um, I, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't be comfortable saying that, yeah, we will end up with having one single language that we're going to use or one world government or one single blockchain or the protocol that we're going to use because there will always be things at the rims of the system that don't feel catered by the, what the, the system provides, be it, uh, a way of expressing or a way of coordinating people or the properties of these um, decentralized protocols for transferring value. So some people may say, well, these are very nice properties, but I want these other properties that uh, this system is not providing. So what I could imagine is either more descriptive languages that allow for protocols to be uh, implemented with them and that could become the, the one meta protocol that everyone is using. Or, uh, what we see is, uh, an effort towards interoper- interoperability so that each community keeps developing the tools that they deem, uh, suitable for their needs. Because this, this is another interesting discussion, which is different currencies are trying to solve different, uh, problems. And this touches directly in, in, with ethics. Why do we want to have these properties in these systems, what are we preventing uh, with it? Why do we want it? And some people may not care about some properties that some other currencies are providing. So why not giving the freedom for people to have the best tools that, that serve their needs and then figure out how we can build bridges between these economic platforms or communities, I think that's more likely what we are going to end up seeing because it's also what we see around us. We see translators. We see uh, we see all these bridges between communities, languages, uh, and, and economic plath- platforms.
1: So you're, you're saying like technologies like cross atomic swaps and whatever things that allow different chains to potentially communicate, things like that. Is that what you're getting at?
2: Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Um, Well, there are many experimentation in this field as well. We have Cosmos, Polkadot, that are trying to, how do we have these, in principle, uh, non-compatible systems that are, at the end, allowing for people to transfer value and so arrange their economic affairs? How do we bridge this gap? Because uh, otherwise, it's going to be very messy. And and if we talk about mass adoption, well, it, it will hardly come if it's very difficult for people to use uh, a more uh, niche currency for buying their coffee. It, in that regard, maybe it happens so that at the end, we end up with one currency that uh, takes all the, most of the cake and everything else is just uh, breadcrumbs.
1: Yeah, I guess what's, what's also unique and interesting about it is, you know, uh, it's not just a protocol for communicating, but like I said, it's a protocol for communicating value. And that comes with its own network effects. Uh, So a protocol for communication has network effects. But then on top of that, if you're saying you're trying to create the the world's money, uh, that that has its own uh, network effect. Um, So I think there are, you know, especially a lot of Bitcoin maximalists, for example, make that argument that because of the network effects of money itself, that it will tend towards one protocol
2: and you may say that well the dollar is the predominant currency in in global affairs but that doesn't mean that other uh, currencies have also uh, a role to play in 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 this global uh, economy so i don't think there will be just one maybe one takes a lot of um, economic activity in, happening in in Italy. But then I would also be concerned with other uh, projects that are going to be very successful, and maybe they don't have the same community approach. And um, Libra comes to mind. Is uh, they may be very successful as well, and they may become very widely adopted very quickly. So I don't know. I, I want to. I want to think. I. I'm, I'm optimistic that people will stay in experimenting with different currencies. I'm not going to the shinier one because I think the shinier one will hardly be based on the principles that uh, initiated this whole movement.
1: Mm, that's interesting because uh, you're uh, just the shinier one in this case being Bitcoin, obviously.
2: Now, the shinier one might be things that are not community driven because this, okay. uh, this is also about a, um, how do we make open source sustainable? And it's not clear that we have found uh, ways to do so. If we look at uh, the, the Linux kernel, it's uh, sustained by companies that built uh, profit-seeking um, enterprise on top, and they, are, they keep developing it. Or you can go on the other end of the spectrum and look at free software. That is, it, th- this is a gift, this, uh, this is what we're doing because we think it's important. And I think at the beginning, uh, Bitcoin had a little bit of that. Although now it has attracted enough commercial activity, so that some players are it's on their best interest to maintain and keep developing the protocol. So in the same sense, I'm saying that the more capital is uh, depending on the on this infrastructure to work properly, the more uh, incentive they have to keep maintaining it. And I wonder what will happen if big players that already have tremendous amount of capital and start funneling them into systems provide similar properties as we are seeing in Bitcoin, Ethereum, Monero, and that's why I was mentioning Libra. This is the first attempt that we are seeing. It's Facebook saying, "Well, this seems to be a, a technical possibility." Um, so, what will happen if we go there and try something with it? And that's what I mean that. It, these companies have, uh, huge, um, uh, engineering teams, legal teams, uh, UX teams, and they will make something that looks really shiny that people will start using right away. And people will not think about the underlying principles that are sustaining these economic platforms. So that's why I'm saying that I hope that we don't go for the shiniest one because the shiniest one will, I don't think it will be based on the same principles that, uh, triggered this whole movement.
1: Yeah, no, I understand, you now. sorry, I misunderstood you before. Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. And uh, I think I mean, I think we're already kind of seeing a rejection of the concept of of, of, uh, you know, Facebook coin, um, even among regulators, uh, you know, not for different reasons. But um, it seems like for this stuff to work, it needs to be truly decentralized and not owned by a company. Uh, even for it to get around, you know, regulations, so to speak, and to not give one company too much power. Um, So I guess the hope is that, you know, a company like Facebook won't even be able to get a project like that off the ground.
2: We'll see. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. But they're riding on the same wave of decentralization. Their association is companies incorporated in different countries so even from the regulatory point of view it's it's hard to to, to grasp and that's why uh, some regulators are um, raising voice of concerns because like uh, are we sure that we can handle these things that will be put there in the wild for people to use and um, yeah definitely they will it will be decentralized but some things of it will be decentralized some things will not it's, it's going to be a, a closed group of people that can decide how the protocol evolves. So if, if they become an economic platform, then... So what leverage do these people have on how um, the rules of the system evolve? And that's, that's the risk. That's the, that's the concern we have in um, well, other types of uh, blockchains that, uh, that try to make things very shiny.
1: All right, well, it was very nice talking to you, Ome. Uh, I'll put, we'll put a link to your talk from earlier today in our show notes so people could go back and watch that. Uh, I think, like great. I said, I thought it was thank a great you. talk, very interesting take on, uh, you know, the forking uh, situation and I thought it was a great explanation.
2: Thank you, thank you. I think it's a, a difficult talk uh, and I hope that, uh, I, I plan to refine the, this uh, this presentation. And, and hopefully drill down even further into some of the nuances of forks.
1: Yeah, I urge you to, because I know in your talk you, you you gave examples of Bitcoin and Ethereum, um, you know, the famous Ethereum fork with, I guess, when the Dow uh, failed. Yeah. But yeah, I urge you to look more closely at Monero as well, and hopefully maybe as an example of a community that's uh, Figured out how how not to fork. So, like I said, Monero does upgrade upgrades every six months, which essentially is a fork, but for it's one wherein <laughs> er, the community all agrees to to move over to the you know to the upgraded software. Uh,
2: so it, I think these are very interesting topics, and I hope that I I have more time to to, to spend uh, studying them. So uh, maybe in the future we can we can talk again.
1: Sounds good. Thank you. Thanks for coming on.
2: Thank you very much for your
1: time. All right, enjoy the conference.
2: Thank you. you.
1: too. Bye. All right, Francisco. Thanks for coming on. You're very welcome. How's the uh, How's the conference going?
3: Well, for me, it's going very well. I mean, uh, it's my first time at uh, a thirty-six C <clears> three, <throat> so. It's a really nice venue. They've done a very good job overall, and I'm actually quite impressed with the work that was done by the uh, uh, um, by the cluster and by Riad. and so they did a really good job.
1: So that, that was nice. What is it like? Um, com- I was. What is it like compared to DefCon? Is it a similar similar scene?
3: It's different in that it's way more um, hacker friendly. It's more informal and creative. So it's not as structured as uh, DEF CON. Um, so that's what I really think that I like. I mean, the design of the space allows people to sort of do their thing, to create a comfortable environment, to create a much more um, creative environment. So those things, I think, are really useful in that respect. I really like that aspect of it, the creativity. Um, so it's less formal. It's less corporate, in a sense. I want to think of it that way, too. This is more in its... And it's an effectual element.
1: Are you, are you meeting people involved in the, in the Monero project that you haven't met elsewhere?
3: Well, that was, of course, one of my objectives in coming down here. I'm meeting people that I have met maybe online, but not in person. And I always feel it's very valuable to meet the actual people in person. So, of course, from my perspective, that was a, that was a key objective to actually meet uh, a lot of people that I, I wouldn't normally be meeting. Um, and to create that presence in Europe, I mean, that's important. Um, so that's a key objective for me um, in that respect. And I like that. I mean, because, like, I think it's very productive for the project, that people are sort of well-known in the project, quote-unquote. You know, they're out there, they're reachable. Um, you know, you can interact with them personally. You can ask them questions, that kind of thing.
1: So before we get into your talk, um, I guess a question about uh, the recent... News that came from the Monero core team, which was uh, Fluffy Pony Ricardo no longer being the lead maintainer. Uh, what's What's your, your take on that? What should What should uh, our reaction be? What should the community's well, it's, reaction it's, it's be to that? Well, it's an
3: evolution of the project. I mean, I think it recognizes the fact the project has grown. It creates redundancy because he's going to be a backup maintainer where there wasn't redundancy before. It's part of the decentralization of the project. It's just part of the normal evolution of the project um, uh, that you have that extra back. I mean, and it was much more than just that. I mean, we had also a lot more, you're creating a more resilient solution than what we had before. And I think that's part of it. I also think that people, um, you know, you want to, I mean, I think Ricardo understands very well his role and how to optimize it. You want to decentralize, well, that's part of it, but he's not going away in another way in many ways, what he's doing now may actually be more work than what he did back in 2014, because the size of the project is like, it's a hundred times, it's a thousand times in size, capitalization alone. So this is, you know, these things evolve. And I think there has to be that sort of spread mm-hmm. of responsibility and centralization. That's just part of the process.
1: So is this something that, like, the core team was talking about? Were you guys uh, aware of it, or were there discussions? Oh yeah, they
3: were, you know, yeah, it was discussed and, and decisions were made, and, and basically the idea was to, to continue with the decentralization role uh, and to essentially create resiliency within the project, and that's exactly what it's doing. We're stronger as a result of this, but I, I, I would be a bit, bit remiss in that, that Ricardo is still leaving the project. That's not correct. It's more that he is taking a different role.
1: Right, he's still going to be, I think, even the backup maintainer, right? If
3: uh, well, he's the backup maintainer. That's right. why I said that it creates original resiliency because now you've got two people instead of one, so you you actually make the situation stronger.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I, my interpretation yeah, was all was all positive. Uh, I just wanted to get yeah. your take on it and understand what the kind of what the core team's uh, mm-hmm. take on it was.
3: Yeah, that's basically that was basically the idea.
1: Okay. So today you gave a talk on uh, block size uh, the dynamic or the dynamic block weight. I'm sorry. Uh, so mm-hmm. I that, that is the first question. What is the difference between block size and block weight?
3: Okay, this is one that actually a lot of people um, it, it, it call, can be caught off guard on. I mean, block weight was introduced in Monero um, with the advent of bulletproofs. And the reason it was done is because in a bulletproof, the size scales as the log, like the size of the proof scales as the log of the number of outputs. And the log base two. when I'm saying log. While the verification time scales linearly with the number of outputs. So the idea is that you wanna price that verification time. Well, you have to find a way to have a linear scaling with number of outputs in the pricing. So that's why we created the block weight, which essentially what it does is you take the space savings from, say, an eight output transaction over the two output transaction. You then take that 80% of the savings, you add it back to the block size to create the block weight. And then you price, i.e. the penalty and the uh, fees, etc., on the basis of the block weight rather than the block size. So what is happening, even though the transaction is smaller in the actual blockchain, you're paying this premium for the fact that you have the extra verification. That's essentially the concept. And it really only kicks in when the transaction has more than two outputs. But that's why block weight was put in there.
1: And so, how did you guys arrive at that exact architecture? Was there
3: well, the, the idea was to create a pricing for um, this 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 verification time, which was scaling linearly. And so, the concept was. Well, you've got to give some, you've got to take a a fair amount of it back, but you've got to leave something on the table. So there's still an incentive to use the eight, uh, the separate outputs because it's more efficient. But you have to pay for for the same time for the verification time because the verification time is, it scales with linear as opposed to log. And that's essentially, so it's a trade-off between the two. And the concept, and I came up with the the term clawback, which is kind of interesting. It's actually the way the Canadian federal government treats pensions. They give you a pension if you make a certain amount of money. They take a percentage of it back, and they call it a clawback. And that's essentially what happens here. I mean, you you're saying, okay, fine. You're not going to get all of the of the benefit of the of the savings in space and cost. We're going to claw some of it back to compensate for this um, uh, verification. That's essentially what it is.
1: Do you see that ever being further adjusted or tweaked or have we kind of arrived at where we need to be with? Well it will
3: the minute you change the underlying reason and that is the way you do the proof. So a lot of what's been in the pipeline you have to look at the parameters at that point in time and if there is a discrepancy between verification time and size then you've got to more than likely keep this kind of model. If on the on the other hand, you went to a system where both verification time and size was the same, scaled the same way, and then you go back to block size. So you're, what you're pricing is, is different, and it's totally dependent upon the actual technology that you're using at, at the proof level. So the mathematics sort of the proofs and how they behave, how, long, how much space they take, and how much time does it take to verify. That's what drives this phenomenon. So it's very much technically related to the actual type of proof.
1: So we haven't really ever seen dynamic block size, uh, block weight in action yet, though, right? I mean, we... Yes, we have. Okay. What, what, uh, what
3: and I uh, believe it occurred... Well, first of all, right at the very beginning, there was an attack in 2014 that actually had the dynamic block size at the time in action. That's very, very early this. And it all worked the way it was supposed to. Then we had in, I believe, in 2018, there was a point where it went up to 400000 and it just worked exactly the way it's supposed to work. So it it goes up and then it, it, it lays down. Then there was the time when there was a problem with it, which was in when we still had, um, before bulletproofs, before when we had, um, before we had uh, bulletproofs and we had 13.5K transactions, but we had a very small minimum block size, and we're getting stuck, and that we needed to change that. And, and that was one case where it did run into trouble. And the reason it ran into trouble is because the ratio between the transaction size, which is what I call the sort of reference transaction size, and the penalty-free block size was too high. Uh, right now, it's, one, it's below 1%, and that's where it should be. If you increase the transaction size, for the average, then you've got to also take a look at that block size. And if you don't increase it, you can create a situation where then it becomes very expensive to transact. And that's what happened just before we went to the 300,000 byte block size.
1: Howard Chu, I, I think it was Howard Chu that I saw make make a comment on Reddit uh, not so long ago, talking about Monero's throughput versus Bitcoin's throughput. hmm Um, Basically saying in essence that Monero may have a larger throughput than Bitcoin if you take into account the need for Bitcoin to essentially do additional transactions to make their coins uh, fungible and private, whereas in Monero it's built into the protocol. Do you have any opinion there on that on that concept? Well,
3: the throughput in how many transactions per second Monero can support.
1: Yeah. And then if you take into account that with Bitcoin, if you want to use Bitcoin correctly every time, it's not just making a transaction, but then there's additional transactions that need to be made to essentially uh, obtain what's obtained naturally with Monero in each transaction.
3: Okay, let me step here for a second. Monero, with its privacy functions, outcompetes Bitcoin on this matter without privacy.
1: Okay, so ignoring privacy. The
3: reason, ignoring privacy entirely. You, you just accept the penalty that the transaction time, uh, time is five times bigger. You're going to have way higher throughput in Monero than you have in Bitcoin, simply because of the fact that they have a fixed block size limit. So they, they're stuck. And they have to keep it small in order to be able to pay for the minus. Now, what Howard Schultz mentioning is that on top of that, you, you, you're, you're comparing, in right, you're comparing apples and oranges because Monero is already factoring the privacy. And if you want to do privacy on top of that in Bitcoin, then you're going to have a much higher cost because it's way less efficient. And that is true. The minute you do Wasabi Wallet and you try to mix and all this kind of stuff, you're going to have a much more inefficient approach to privacy. So it's actually going to be bigger. For for less privacy. You don't get the efficiency there. But the the fundamental problem that people forget here. Now, I'll give you another example. Take Bitcoin Cash. They think they have a 32 megabyte, sorry, kilobyte, sorry, 32 megabyte block size. That is actually smaller when you take into account Nielsen's law than when Bitcoin's one megabyte block size was back in 2010. So if you look at how much bandwidth has increased in that period of time, the last nine years, nine and a half years, you already have a smaller block size in Bitcoin cash than you had in Bitcoin back in 2010. And we're talking a factor of about 38. The privacy function, what we're talking about here, is about five. So between comparing Monero's privacy with no privacy at all in Bitcoin, the cost of Monero's privacy is five. That's been wiped out just by Nielsen's law and the successes to Moore's law, things such as um, three-dimensional chips and where all the technology is going. So that just totally wiped that issue out. Yes, Monero is less for because of the privacy overhead, but that's minimal compared to what really is driving this, which is technology.
1: Is there any way to actually or has anybody quantified these things in a digestible way where you can essentially compare apples to oranges here? So, you know, kind of boiling it down to because obviously Monero well, and Bitcoin are both very different animals, but it's it's hard to quantify and describe uh, the comparison of throughput, given that they're different.
3: Well, I mean, yeah, in the sense that you have to accept the transaction size, so, so if you look at. Yeah, the first problem is you're comparing apples and oranges to the privacy side. So what are we gonna do? We're gonna do Wasabi Wallet on, on Bitcoin. Well, we're gonna probably need a lot of mixing with Wasabi wallet to try to compensate for the fact that you do not have confidential transactions or you do not have stealth addresses for starters. So, so the right off the get go, your your um coin mixing is horrendously inefficient and subject to, to tracking because you have transaction problems. So now you have a way less inefficient privacy model, and then you're going to turn around and say, well, we're we going to compare to Monero's. Well, if you try to simulate what Monero does, I mean, you're way behind in, in, in Bitcoin. So you are comparing apples and oranges. I mean, there's, there's no two goals about it. But I mean, I, probably a better example would be to look at, say, I, if you take a privacy equation totally out, then, of course, you would look at Dogecoin versus versus Bitcoin, and you would have put Monero's um scaling the technology onto coin and then make a comparison. And then you can say, well, this, well, of course, in Monero's market, you're limited by the technology. But the technology's goalposts keep moving. So what you're limited by in Monero today is not what you're going to be limited by in Monero 10 years from now. But Bitcoin has got stuck on this one megabyte limit because basically they have to keep it small because the fees to go up so they can take care of the falling block reward. At the other side of the equation, you've got Picoset So what are they doing? Well, let's create humongous blocks with any and every kind of data on the, on the blockchain because we need to sell the space to compensate for the miners. So they both have a problem, which has nothing to do with privacy. Um, and it is to do with a scaling problem. Now, yes, Monero has to pay a price for, for excellent privacy, but that's minimal compared to what we're dealing with here.
1: What kind of transaction volume can Monero handle today? I mean, obviously, it works for its purposes today, given the amount of users that are using it. It's very cheap to send transactions. Um, What, you know, if, if the world turned on, you know, woke up tomorrow and said, hey, Monero is what we need to use to transact on the internet. Would Monero be able to handle it? To what degree would it be able to handle it?
3: Well, basically, it will hit the limit. I mean, the limit that you would have is the technological limit, and and the test there has been on Bitcoin SV, where they're doing 200 megabyte block in 10 minutes. So you could say, well, if they could prove that, then Monero should be able to do in 10 minutes equal amount of of transactions. I mean, that's one way to look at it, but that's at that point in time. Um, And they had all sorts of other issues. I mean, but yes, I mean, theoretically, it really depends. Then you say, what well, can it do uh, 10 years, five years from now? It's going to be whatever Nielsen's law and, and the successors to Moore's law are going to allow. So you have this goal boost that's moving all the time. So I think realistically... I mean, you could probably take a look at what other chains has done, and I think what Bitcoin SV has done in testing these, these sites, very large blocks, and get an idea to what the limits would be from the current technology. Because they've tested it on their chain already. They're pushing the limit because they need to, to fill their chain up with, with all sorts of stuff in order to try to pay for the for the miners. So they have a real – that's how they're trying to deal with the, with the fee problem. So – if you look at what they're doing, then that'll give you an idea where your, your technological limits are at one point in time. Ultimately, what's going to happen is you could, in principle, increase the orphan rate. And then we're, we're into Peter Reson's work, which essentially adds the second term to the penalty to account for the fact that minors um, have a higher probability of orphans. So they're going to restrict. I mean, you could you could approach it that way. And that is driven again by the blocker, but it's the same formula. It's like an extra exponential term. So that could limit, and that would be that technological limit we're just talking about. But once you take that out, you're limited by how fast you allow scaling to happen in the blockchain.
1: Do you think Monero will kind of always stay ahead in terms of uh, where it needs to be in scaling and what its actual adoption is? I mean, right now, I think we're obviously at that stage, right? So Monero can handle its user base now. Uh, well, Do you think it will hit a wall or it will always be able to kind I don't of... Think
3: so. no, I, think, I think the growth is going to be organic. I also think that Monero is the only coin right now that has dealt with something as basic as how do you deal with transaction variability. And by that, I'm talking about transaction volume variability. Now, if you look at the Christmas season in North America and in Europe, you have a peak in December 23rd and you have a crash in transaction volumes on December 25th. And if you look at Visa statistics, and, and, and they have exactly, is exactly the same problem whether centralized or decentralized. I mean, everybody wants to go and buy their Christmas presents on December 23rd. And there's a surge right at the end. So if they're using Monero or they're using Visa, you're going to get the same ratio between the average transaction level on retail and the peak transaction level. And this is why we have this 50 times factor in between, and, uh, uh, built into Monero. We're well, the only guy that's done that. Nobody has even looked at this issue. How do you deal with a burst in transaction? I mean, this is um, over a period of, say, a month when, in fact, your overall growth is going to be way lower. And and nobody's even looked at this question. And we're the only client that's implemented it already. So we're way ahead of the game on scale. Is
1: there anything that you're excited for right now, Monero, coming up? That's on the on the roadmap. I mean, right
3: now it's it's a question I think of awareness. I mean, my opinion is this issue of scaling in Monero really there's a lack of awareness about it, even within the community. Uh a lot of people seem to be under the misunderstanding that we scale worse than Bitcoin and we have to sort of compete with Bitcoin on on, on whatever privacy attempts they're doing. And I'm saying no, I mean I'm saying privacy is part of Monero. Yes, we're gonna pay a five time transaction size on it, it'll go down maybe if, Five to six, to maybe four to five, with, uh, and then it'd be made more efficient, but maybe we'll invest a bit more in privacy. But that's min- the minimus. It's minimal or long-term with when you're dealing with the technological changes, like comparing sending a telegram and sending an email. I mean, it's, that's the, the kind of the way you need to think about it. So the long-term is fundamentally very, very solid for Monero. And the interesting thing is, is because no other, we're the only coin that's really addressed the problem of long-term fees. Nobody else has done it with the exception of Dogecoin. And they, they could probably re- basically take our technology and put it on their chain. But when it comes to Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin SV and Dash and Litecoin and Zcash, they've all got this maximum number of coins. So they're all going to hit protocol limits and privacy that got nothing to do with what the technology support. support,
1: mm-hmm.
3: And it's a matter of time.
1: Are there, uh, are there any talks that you're particularly interested in listening to at the conference?
3: Well, there's a few that I'm interested in. I, now that I have a bit more time, I'm focused on my... Um, I'm, I'm no longer concerned about focusing on my own talks. So now I'm looking to learn about the whole... You know, the whole uh, what's happening here and so on. So a lot of very interesting stuff. There's a lot of very interesting work being done on free software, on broader issues of end-user security and all. There's a ton of things that's happening here in that respect. So there's a lot of stuff that I've been looking around on the workshops and so on. Um, one thing that I kind of got my attention is the replicants in Android because Android is very much controlled at the device level right now, and that's something I have a big problem with. So those type of things are really interesting. I mean, uh, one point that I would make is if you're looking at something like Monero, the security of Monero is only as good as the end user security. So if you compromise the device, there goes your privacy. You can do all these great things on the network, but if the device has got a hole in it, well, what? the privacy is gone. That's a good example of what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. So you need a secure device.
1: Definitely. So at the 36C3, obviously, everybody there, for the most part, is part of this culture of respecting digital privacy and trying to build tools to help enable uh, protections of privacy. Do you see that conversation becoming more mainstream now in 2020?
3: Well, yes. I mean, I uh, one only needs to see, I think uh, there's more awareness, There's more awareness internationally about the issue of privacy. Um... You know, there's awareness in, uh, in America, for example, with the calif- law in California with respect to privacy. There's big awareness. A very interesting response is the kind of very negative response that uh, Facebook Libra got from regulators almost across the world. That's a real indicator that people are waking up to some of the issues. Um, I think it's because it's perceived of its weakness in privacy overall. Um, so, those are very, there's a lot more awareness about this. Um, one thing that I'd like to point out, what kind of bothers me sometimes with Monero, is people are missing – when they look at a regulation, for example, they don't actually read it. So, well, how is it really impacting Monero, for example, as opposed to saying, you know, blindly assuming that it will. And there's a few threads that I've seen, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, do you so – think
3: it's important.
1: Yeah, there seems to be a lot of FUD and misunderstanding out there as to what the actual regulations are and what effect they're going to have on Monero and are exchanges uh, delisting Monero because of it. What What is your overall take there Do you on, on regulation and how it's going to affect Monero in the coming years?
3: Well, I think right now what I've seen from the regulators is not particularly negative to Monero. But the FUD around it has been very significantly negative. And that got to the point where, for example, it may influence a decision such as an exchange listing um, before, because of how regulation is interpreted. And a great example of this has occurred, I mean, there was one that came out in France. They had a very extensive report. There was a minority opinion by the president that says, well, these are the things that I thought should have been done, one of which was to target private cryptocurrencies but that didn't make it into the final report. What made it, the recommendations were not, what, what, what was that? Everybody focused on this minority comment saying, well, France is gonna ban crypto, uh, private cryptocurrencies. No, that's not what the report said. It was considered by one of the two members and it was decided that that didn't go in the final recommendation. And that's the kind of thing that we need to make those subtle distinctions. There's another case in Canada, well, there, there, actually, More familiar would be the case in the United States with the proposed legislation. Now, there what they did is they called it crypto uh, commodities rather than cryptocurrencies. And then they applied very strict regulations to cryptocurrencies. So they take Monero and they call it a crypto commodity. They give it essentially a level of very favorable regulation. The same thing with Bitcoin. Then they take a whole bunch of other coins, including Facebook, Libra. they call it a cryptocurrency and they hit it hard with regulation. And then everybody runs around and assumes that the cryptocurrency regulation applies to the crypto commodities, i.e. Bitcoin and Monero, and there's a ton of thought around it. Well, read the thing. If it's decentralized, it's a crypto commodity, not a cryptocurrency. And that's what we have to keep in mind. We have to actually read the actual uh, case. Then there was a case in Canada where they were dealing with the GSD. Which is like a Canadian version of that. And again, the the legislation exempted Bitcoin and Monero and so on, but hit hard certain types of uh, stable coins. Well, you gotta make that distinction. What exactly are they doing? So that's what I'm saying. When it comes to regulation, I would like, I always like to see start by reading the regulation itself and then form an opinion because a lot of what is coming out is not really what the regulation says.
1: Do you think it also could potentially uh, bring more attention to Monero? So regulation, obviously not the best thing if it's going to uh, reduce liquidity, making it more difficult for people to obtain Monero on exchanges. But could it also have the opposite effect, kind of bringing attention to Monero as people see it more in the news and see that you know, uh, governments are talking about it? Um, just this discussion of regulation in cryptocurrencies and Monero in particular, could that potentially have a positive effect on uh, increasing the mind share of, of Monero? Well, it could in
3: the sense that I mean it, it creates awareness, but it also I think there's a danger if there's misunderstanding of thought. So it's kind of a both a, a positive and a negative. I I think lack of awareness of Monero is very significant. I do sense that there's a very strong support on what I would consider the smart money. Um, very good example of that would have been Daniel's talk, his keynote where he covered a lot of that element. So definitely there is that element. I mean, that's, that's kind of the vibes that I'm getting. But at the same time, you have a lot of FUD running around. There. I think that's hurting awareness in general is a good thing in the long term. Um, I think also another area that, that will impact Monero very significantly is that there's going to be stiff regulations against mixers and opt-in privacy, mainly because it's easy to do. And the classic example we saw it with an exchange says, if you want privacy, get a privacy coin, Because otherwise you're going to be in trouble. Um, I have some serious concerns about things like Wasabi Wallet and Bitcoin. Cash uh, fusion and cash shuffle and Bitcoin Cash, etc. These kind of things are easy to target by chain analysis companies, etc. So they will target. it.
1: Mm. Yeah, it's easier and to make the assumption that anybody that's using a mixer has something to hide, is trying to, uh, you know, clean their tainted coins. Whereas people that are using Monero, since it's private by default, you can't make that assumption.
3: Well, I think what you have is is a very simple statistical probability that if you have coins that have gone through... In Monero, what you get is basically the average percentage. Whatever percentage is dark money, that's what you're going to get. In Bitcoin, on the other hand, you're going to get a selection for dark money in a mixer because the people that are going to mix it are those that are really... that. And also, when you consider the way that, that it's actually being used is that when you consider the way it's used you have a a, a pre-selection towards dark money and a mix and Bitcoin that you do not get in Monero. So statistically, if you're doing an analysis probability risk management for MLNYC, Monero is going to have a fraction of the risk that, say, a mixed Bitcoin ever will for that reason because it's selectively going for the group, and that's the danger. All right. And I think... uh, that's the point that was made with respect to that exchange.
1: Mm-hmm. All right, I think we'll uh, we'll leave it at that. Thanks again, Francisco. Sounds it's always good. a pleasure having you on. We'll uh, link Very to well. we'll link to your full talk in the in the show notes when we post this. Uh, obviously, encourage everybody to watch that. All right, we'll be in touch. Thank well, thank you. Thank you. Thanks thank for coming you. on.
0: Thank you for joining us on this week's episode. We release new episodes every week. You can find and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have an Alexa device, you can tell it to listen to the latest episode of the Monero Talk podcast. Go to monerotalk.live slash subscribe for a full list of places where you can watch and listen. If you want to interact with us, guests or other podcast listeners, you can follow us on Twitter,